0: Oh, mercy,
1: mercy, me. All oh, things ain't what they used to be now. now where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the Lord in some place. 1971, mercy, mercy, me, the ecology. Marvin Gaye knew where things were heading environmentally and it wasn't good. Six years later, 1977, the National Academy of Sciences wrote a report saying that burning fossil fuels was causing the planet to heat up. Also in 1977, Exxon scientists reached the same conclusion and briefed oil executive companies about the threat. I'm going to put this in context a little bit. My guest today is Bill McKibben, and we're actually about the same age. We were seniors in high school. I'm guessing that we weren't focused on uh, global warming yet. We were focused on what college we were going to go to or perhaps just in a short time we'd be able to legally buy beer. That's that's how long ago this was. The drinking age was 18 then. Now, I'm not going to link the entire chronology of global warming to our personal lives. I'm coming to an important date and a question for Bill. In 1989, he wrote a very popular book, surprising given the gloomy name. The book was The End of Nature, Warning About Global Warming. Since then, the data and news just gets worse and worse. Bill was inspired to action, leading marches, starting 350.org, an international grassroots movement on climate, getting arrested to protect the XL pipeline, starting the fossil fuel divestment movement, just really tirelessly working with others on this. And Bill, thank you for being on the show. You've been working on this for a hell of a long time. What's going on? Why so long for leaders to recognize and act on the threat? What's What's your best take on that?
0: Well. You know, it was always going to be a difficult problem. I wrote the first book about this in 1989, and the cheerful title of it was The End of Nature, because I knew that we were in a, um, in a tough spot. I mean, you know, the world's most important commodities are coal and gas and oil and the power they produce. What we didn't reckon with, though, was the unbelievable obstruction put forward by the fossil fuel industry. And that's been the thing that's kept us from making even a kind of feeble and half-hearted uh, attempt so far. That power, which maybe now we're just finally beginning to be able to assail a little bit with this growing movement, that power has kept us from doing anything for a quarter century, maybe the critical quarter century.
1: Something really significant happened in the last couple of weeks, which was an international treaty on climate that occurred in Paris. And I know you were there, and I want to talk about that. But before we get to that topic, I I just wanted to find out what your path to activism is, because that's one of the things I like to talk about in this show. What was it that moved you to act and switch from being as you were? You you went to Harvard, you went to the New Yorker to write, then you quit to write books. But at some point you said, I have to act. And and when was that and how'd that happen?
0: Well, uh, I was a journalist. I was a writer. I went straight from college to the New Yorker where I wrote the talk of the town column for the magazine, which was a pretty urban job. And I loved it. As I say, you know, I come from, my father's a newspaper man, that's my world. Um, but I did write a long piece for the New Yorker in my early 20s, about where everything in my apartment came from. And I traced all of the lines, the you know, the sewer lines out through all the sewer processing facilities out to the barges that were dumping sludge in New York Harbor. And I followed the electric lines all the way back to the jungles of Brazil where Con Ed was buying oil and up into the Arctic where they were getting hydropower and down into the Grand Canyon where they were mining uranium for Indian Point, on and on and on. And at the end of it, I had a long piece, And I also had a new appreciation for the physicality of the world. For me, it was quite a revelation to understand that there I was on Manhattan, a place that seems to be able to mint money and ideas out of thin air, and yet it was exquisitely dependent on a few huge water pipes coming down out of the Catskills, and uh, you know gas uh, pipes coming up from the Gulf of Mexico, and on and on and on. And I think actually that experience like set me up pretty well for um for what would become. Uh, for, really for reading the early science about climate change uh, a year or two later. And I was reading all that early science, and I had a strong sense suddenly of the vulnerability and the fragility of the planet and its arrangements. I didn't take them for granted anymore. And so that let me, well, that let me, um, I, I think, react more More straightforwardly, less guardedly than uh, most journalists did to the beginning news about the emergence of climate change. I knew right away that it was a big deal, maybe the biggest story of all time. And so I went to work. And uh, that book was half reporting on where we were, the first kind of long account of climate change. And it was half a kind of philosophical essay about how it all made me feel, which at the time was mostly more sad than scared just sad that human beings were overwhelming everything on this sweet planet that our footprint was suddenly absolutely everywhere that there was no escaping us even in the wilderness which is where i was more or less living um there was nothing to be no way to get away from our effects
1: i'm guessing you wrote the book because you thought well boy if i can just explain it well enough if i can share this information other people will take action
0: my conviction was we were engaged in an argument, but that conviction was mistaken. We were really engaged in a fight, and the fight, as fights usually are, was about money and power, uh, dramatically, and that it was time to assemble some power.
1: I had that kind of same revelation too. Explaining things didn't work. I, shortly after college, I went to work for a U.S. congressman, and I assumed, of course, that you know these were the bright; these were really smart people. And they were debating the important issues of the day and working things out. And then the discovery was that it wasn't just uh, the rational argument that was winning the debate. It was all about power and where did power come from. So, what did you decide to do then? You know, how did you decide to figure ag- to aggregate power and bring power to bear rather than than mere argument, rather than mere rationality?
0: Well, of course, I had no real good idea how to do it. Um, and still don't. We've been making all this up as we go along. But the first thing I did was just ask some of my friends if they wanted to walk across Vermont where I live. And we had a march that lasted five days. We'd sleep in farmer's fields at night. And since I'm a Methodist Sunday school teacher, I'd call up churches along the way so they'd have potluck supper ready for us and things. And by the time we got to Burlington, which is our main city in Vermont, only 50,000 people, so not that big a city, but it's what we got. By the time we got there, there were 1,000 people marching. Now, you're the former mayor of a big metropolis, so that doesn't sound like much to you. But in Vermont, 1,000 people is as many people as ever gather for anything except maybe UVM hockey games. And so it was. it was a big deal. I remember our uh, Senator Bernie Sanders meeting us at the edge of town in great excitement at this. he said, I haven't seen anything like this since the war in Vietnam. It was very good, but it was quite depressing to read the newspaper the next day. And there was the story said this may have been the largest gathering about climate change in the United States ever. And uh, when I read that, I realized really why we were getting our butts kicked. We had the superstructure of a movement. We had scientists and policy wonks and al gore and all of that the only part of the movement we didn't have was the movement part so we set to work building it and really 350.org grew out of that it was myself and seven undergraduates at middlebury college here in vermont where i teach sometimes and we just conceived the in retrospect ludicrous idea that we were going to organize the planet and we set to work <laughs> we took our name from what my friend Jim Hansen had just decided was the most important number on Earth. The amount of carbon in parts per million you could safely have in the atmosphere, 350 parts per million. Beyond that, he said having more than that was not compatible with the planet on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted, which is strong work for strong words for scientists to use. That's why we took the name, but we also did it because we knew we wanted to organize globally. And we figured that Arabic numerals would translate around the planet more easily than English words. And so uh, off we set. And there were seven undergraduates. There were seven continents. Each one took one. The guy who took the Antarctic, John Warno, also had to take the Internet. And our goal
1: (laughs) everywhere was to
0: find people like ourselves who were worried about this. Now, there's not, Michael, everywhere someone who's an environmentalist, but there's everywhere someone who's worried about public health or war and peace or women's rights or uh, hunger or all the things that you can't address on a rapidly deteriorating planet. And they became our allies quickly. When we held our first Global Day of Action that year, um, out of nowhere, we managed to coordinate 5,200 simultaneous demonstrations in 181 countries. CNN called it the most widespread day of political activity in the planet's history. And the pictures that were flowing in from around the world were very, very beautiful. It made it clear to me very quickly that the old trope i'd heard many times about how environmentalism was something for rich white people and that if you were uh, not that you wouldn't be an environmentalist because you were too worried where your next meal was coming from that just all turned out to be nonsense most of the people that we were working with around the world as the pictures instantly made clear were poor black brown asian young because that's what most of the world is composed of and we've gone on to build big organization, not not really an organization, a big network, uh, kind of open source activism over the intervening seven years now. We think we've held about 20,000 demonstrations in every country except North Korea. And we've moved quickly from kind of education to confrontation, kind of helping spearhead the campaign against the Keystone pipeline and building this huge divestment movement of which you were such an early and important part.
1: There's so many different threads to pick up on that. I'm still thinking about what that meeting was like in that room for the first time with you and seven undergrads saying, you know, what are we going to do now?
0: Well, it was, you know, fun. I mean, they were they they were good. They'd already done a little organizing there at college and, and they knew what they were doing. Um, they were planning to move out to Montana as a group and do anti-coal organizing, but they decided we'd try to do this thing in the whole world for a year. Um, they've all stuck with it. They're now the people who run 350.org, and they're far better at it than I'll ever be. Um, they're highly organized and, and intelligent and ready to go. So I, I they are my People I admire most in the world. I'm
1: guys. I'm gonna make a small digression here because every once in a while you, we keep hearing about the millennial generation. I, I guess the two of us are baby boomers, you know, officially. Um, right. I had a lot of young kids helping me on my campaigns, and mm-hmm. I, and it's pretty uh, us baby boomers and us older folks like to kind of pick on the millennials once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but I gotta say that's not my that's not my opinion because I. I had to learn how to work with the younger folks, how to make some adjustments. They grew up in a different world than I did. But I'll tell you, that's where all the hope lies for me. I mean, I'll work hard, you'll work hard, but that's not where my hope lies. It lies with the younger you know,
0: folks. I, uh, I've encouraged them not to think of themselves uh, too much by their age and nobody else either. I, I I don't like the idea that young people have to go take care of this Um Um, I think it lets older people off the hook too easily, and you're the exception for people who've taken up the challenge. Uh, I'll note that when we've asked, older people, sometimes really older people, have stood right up. When we started the first demonstrations around Keystone in Washington, I wrote the letter asking people to come get arrested, which was a hard letter to write. But one of the things I said was that um, I didn't think young people should have to be the cannon fodder here. Uh, you know if you're uh, whatever you they call them a millennial or a generation Z or whatever, whatever it is, it is. Yeah. Um, then maybe an arrest record's not the best thing for your resume in a tough economy you know one of the few unmixed blessings of growing older is past a certain point uh, what are they going to do to you you know And so it was good to see that it was lots of people with receding hairlines like mine that showed up. Now, we didn't ask people as they were getting arrested, how old are you? That would be rude and presumptuous. But we did cleverly, I think, ask, who was president when you were born? And the two biggest cohorts came from the FDR and the Truman administrations. So that gave me a lot of hope, and I think it gave a lot of hope to the young people who were there because they got to see their elders behaving the way that elders are supposed to behave in a working society. So, all around, I, you know, I, I, I think we need a lot of people from a lot of different ages doing the thing that's suited to them.
1: I'm I'm with you, and part of the reason I brought that up was because I I cringe every time I see people, you know, trying to pick on the younger generation for you know not being tough enough or not. Oh, yeah. not being smart enough. I just always cringe no, no, when I see right. that.
0: Don't, don't worry about them. Yeah, They're don't worry perfect.
1: about them. That's exactly where I'm at. And, the, and, and what you did was you, to a great degree, turned over power and authority to the younger generation and said, you know, roll, let's go. And we need to listen yeah. to them and let them lead. One let them of the
0: that makes young people particularly well-suited for this work is that because they grew up in the Internet age, unlike us, they have an almost intuitive and visceral understanding of the connection Between people all over the world, um, which has proved invaluable in trying to do this sort of global organizing. Uh, We really meant it when we said we were open source. We had no money and no lists or anything. So we didn't waste our time trying to, you know, we knew that there's no way we'd be able to rebuild the Sierra Club or something and glad it's there. But I don't think there's going to be kind of organizations that start now where people come to chapter meetings every Wednesday night for the rest of their lives. But you can get people to really dive in deep for a few months on projects. And that's what we were able to do just by kind of letting anyone take the logo, take the idea and run with it. I mean, we say we were organizing, but really it's more like we were throwing A long series of potluck suppers where we'd sort of set the date and the theme, and everyone would bring their best.
1: No, organizing has changed, and I I spent a lot of time at those you know regular weekly meetings in the Sierra Club, regular weekly meetings in my neighborhood. I like to think of it too as being small D democracy. You know, as part of as part of how. And you're from Vermont, which has town halls, as, as does Massachusetts. People actually show up and vote on the budget. And I think stuff like that is so great. And there's something about our modern world where we don't engage in that type of small D democracy anymore that we, that we need to, but it can still occur. It's just, it's a different venue. It's a different forum and it's a different way of doing it. And
0: yeah. And there's no reason to, I mean, there's, I'm very glad that those things are there and, you know, you know, from your own experience that there are times when there's no substitute. I mean, a political campaign is by definition kind of face to face and, and really, so is most good organizing. We were trying to use the internet mostly as a way to bring people together in the real world and then to take those images and get them back up out on the web so everyone could see them. Our killer app at the beginning was Flickr. I think we have fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 pictures now in the Flickr account from rallies and demonstrations all over the world. And when I become discouraged, I will sometimes just scroll through them for a while and be reminded of how many great people there are in all kinds of places doing this work, doing it well and doing it without any real direction.
1: Well, this is one of the reasons I started this podcast was this idea that if you could just hear people's stories of what they did, how they got engaged, what they're working on, that it could inspire other people to action. It's one of the things that for me was the best part about being mayor was getting to meet so many people who cared so deeply. And when you get into that type of web of people, it's, kind of hard not to do something yourself
0: absolutely we know one of the things the nice things that's happened at 350 without us intending it to is just all these endless local chapters have sprung up all over the place and we're not in charge of them we don't direct them exactly we don't just sort of work with them and 350 seattle is a kind of good case in point you know look at the work that you all have done on divestment on the Gates Foundation or the amazing kayaktivism that helped drive <laughs> Shell out of the Arctic. Or, we had we had a lot whatever. of
1: fun out here, Bill. We had a lot of fun it's out here. It's all
0: people just taking the bull by the horns, not waiting for someone to tell them what to do, uh, not even asking if they can, just going and doing, and it makes me super happy.
1: So I want to turn to Paris. What happened, Bill? What happened in Paris?
0: Well, what happened was pretty much what everyone knew was going to happen, I think, I mean, I think the way to think about that place in any of these big conferences and stuff is it's not the game, it's the scoreboard. It reflects how much pressure and work had happened beforehand. So, you know, the reason that Copenhagen six years ago failed above all else was that there was no movement to hold our leaders accountable. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton could wander back in dismal failure to the U.S. and pay no political price. Um... That's not the case anymore. I mean, we can put 400,000 people in the street in a single place in a single day if we need to. Uh, That was New York a year ago, and that was the biggest demonstration about anything in this country in a long time. Um, There's no way that they or most other world leaders could have gotten away with inaction this time. Um, The question was how much pressure we could put on them against how much pressure the fossil fuel industry can put on them. And they kind of split the difference. World leaders in Paris actually set a good target, uh, saying they're going to try to hold the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius, uh, less than 3 degrees Fahrenheit, which, you know, won't be easy. We've increased the temperature 1 degree so far, and that's, you know, melted most of the Arctic, um, but might be survivable. So that's a good goal. The problem was that their 1.5 degrees Celsius target came with a plan, commitments that would increase the temperature at 3.5 degrees, uh, roughly six and a half degrees Fahrenheit. That would be the end of the world. And so our job is to somehow now close that gap and keep reminding them what they promised to do so that they kind of have to do it.
1: It strikes me that this thing occurs in layers. And I love that analogy. This is the scoreboard and not the whole game. You know, The rest of yep. the game has yet to be played. So yep. in Seattle, my real introduction to climate change was you know, pressing my predecessor to do better on climate change. And mm-hmm. he made a remarkable commitment. Greg Nichols made a remarkable commitment, mm-hmm. which was that Seattle would work to meet the goals of the Kyoto Protocol, which were modest mm-hmm. uh, in the first bunch of years, You know, 7% reductions by 2012, and mm-hmm. then further committed to, you know, meeting the 80% by 2050, which was kind of the, the mark that people bold were standard. using at the time. Right. That was the bold standard at the time. And, and boy, it was something. You know, Al Gore came to town and gave a preview of his mm-hmm. movie here and came to the press conference where the plan was announced. I sat on the committee that came up with the plan. But, you know, a bunch of years later, <laughs> we did the math and didn't actually hit the 2012 target. So um, I'm telling that story because the next part's really hard. I mean, even get, getting the number right is one thing. Getting the emissions to hit the number are another. And this was yep. liberal Seattle, you know, where everybody yep. said they cared about it, you know. Yeah, but saying and, doing, saying and doing are different things.
0: It's, it's always pushing uphill against the um, structural power of the fossil fuel industry. They've got us locked into one way of doing things, and they'd like to keep us there as long as they can. It's no question difficult, uh, and it's, you know, it's possible that it's not even doable. I mean, uh, there really are scientists who think we've waited too long to get started. I think the best science indicates we still have a small window open um, to some kind of survivable planet, but that window is clearly closing pretty fast. This, you know, 2015 is turning out to be the by far hottest year that we've ever recorded on this planet. Uh, It's going to smash the old records set last year. And in so doing, you know, there are scientists who are saying this is sort of the beginning of a next phase step increase in uh, temperature. Um, It can be scary if you let it get to you. And so one works as hard and fast as one can because it's the first problem we've come up against that really has a time
1: limit. Well, you know, uh, being in politics, Bill, can make one cynical. I I can speak for firsthand to that uh, but I refuse to go there yet because it um the duty is to work as hard as you can and there's and there's got to be a pathway for us to get there. So what's next? What do you what do you say to people and what do the troops say to you about what's next? Where does the movement go post Paris?
0: Well, I think we're going to concentrate on this kind of keep it in the ground message that's been very effective. You saw it being employed out there in Seattle as everyone was working on the Arctic stuff in Seattle and Portland. And of course, it was one of the keys in the Keystone Pipeline battle. In May, we'll be having big demonstrations on many of the largest carbon deposits on Earth, you know, coal fields in the Powder River Basin or in Australia or in Poland or in Germany and big oil and gas facilities, uh, you know, deposits around the world. I think we're also going to try... And go hard into the questions around ExxonMobil, the biggest and most important fossil fuel company on Earth. As you know, a series of stories in the L.A. Times and Inside Climate News in the last six weeks have made it very clear that they knew everything there was to know about climate 30 years ago. And instead of fessing up and helping solve the problem... They instead spent tens of millions of dollars building the kind of architecture of denial and deception that's slowed us down for so long. So we need to really take that into account. I mean, it's a key kind of part of this divestment movement. Who would want to be invested in a company that had just carried off, uh, who knows whether it's legally a crime or not, but in any moral sense, the corporate crime of the century, maybe of all time? And it's important too because not just of what they did, but what they're still doing. They spend billions and billions of dollars a year looking for new hydrocarbons in a world where we already have five times as much coal and oil and gas as any scientist thinks we can safely burn. They're now the biggest, I think, fracking leaseholder in the, company, in the country and in many other parts of the world. Uh, so they're busy pouring methane as well as carbon into the atmosphere. I think that there's a kind of opening now to get people to understand the ruinous role that Exxon and its ilk have had.
1: The, the divestment argument really appealed to me when it was first presented to me by you, in fact, in a conference yeah. room and outside the mayor's office. And I was you know, kind of skeptical of it at first uh, before I heard it explained to me. And then I got it. And what I really yeah. liked about it was the line drawing aspect of it. You know, what side are you on? There can be no clearer statement of what side you're on than of what you want to invest in for the future. What type of future do yep. you want? But amazingly yep. enough, as the data keeps coming in, as the information keeps coming in, that's the side you want to be on if you want to get the best <laughs> returns on your investments too. Uh, it's, it's which funny is that really you and I
0: turned out to be good stock pickers. <laughs>
1: <I> know. Uh, <laughs> well, it's
0: uh, it's nice that it's been amazing to watch it spread. I mean, you know, when we started it, we hoped it would be a good and useful campaign. But if you told us that three years later, endowments and portfolios worth three and a half trillion dollars would have divested, we'd have been amazed. I mean, that's the California Teachers Retirement Fund and Public Employees Retirement Fund. It's schools like Stanford and Oxford and Sydney and Edinburgh and Syracuse and Georgetown. and uh, The University of Washington divested from coal. Um, the University of Hawaii divested from every fossil fuel It's been amazing to watch it spread around the world. And most importantly, what it's done is drive that fact that undergirded it, the fact that we had far more coal and oil and gas than we could ever burn, to drive that into the middle of the conventional wisdom. I mean, three years ago, that was me writing in Rolling Stone. And now it's the head of the World Bank and the IMF and Deutsche Bank and the Bank of England and so on and so forth. Everyone knows that we have a huge risk of stranded assets in unburnable carbon.
1: Well, it's amazing how social norms can change and how opinion <laughs> can change over time. Um, as mayor, I I got to name uh, buildings and streets after one individual who broke up wrestling matches at the UW because um, they were wrestling against a school that was still segregated. And that was Larry mm-hmm. Gossett. Uh, we named a street after Bernie Whitebear, who occupied for. Fort Lawton, an abandoned army base saying, well, it's actually our land, Native American land. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now we're about to uh, rename a wildlife refuge after uh, an individual who was arrested for fishing for salmon, Billy Frank, uh, against state law, pointing out that the that the natives had rights to fish for those salmon. Yep. So th- th- this process of social change is so fascinating. That's the other thing that, that that gives me hope here. Maybe they'll be naming a building after you for getting arrested at the White House, Bill. What do you think?
0: Uh, not my goal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. And that's the fascinating thing, of course, is that the people who are least motivated by status are the ones who take the biggest risks. So I, I guess that's encouragement to folks as to you know, what's supposed to come next when you, when you think about it, but also encouragement that what is currently perceived as irrational, uncomfortable, and disruptive can actually be ended up being rewarded in the future.
0: Yeah, history moves along, you know, and 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 I'd be completely sanguine about it all if we didn't need it to move very quickly in this case. <laughs> you know, Dr. King always used to say the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, which I would take to mean we're going to win, but it's going to take a while. Um, in this case, the arc of the physical universe is short, and it bends toward heat. And if we don't win soon, we're not going to win. So we best get at it.
1: Well, that's one of the most difficult things. And I think we observe this in Paris too, is the nature of, you know, politicians to compromise, right? What Let's find the middle ground. Unfortunately, you know, the middle ground be, between what the science tells us we should do and what the corporation should tell tell us to do is, is merely um, delaying the inevitable. It's not actually solving the problem. And I, I think that's one of the underpinnings that that people yeah, really it have is to it's actually a demand. very difficult
0: problem for politicians in that regard because correctly politicians are used to uh, you know compromise That's the it's the that's how societies move best you know we get some done of what we need and the world adjusts and if there's more that needs to be done we move on and do the rest and you know change should happen fairly slowly and allows societies to deal with it. And that's the inexpensive way and the untraumatic way. And that's how we change best. Our problem here, as you know, is that the adversary, it's not really Democrats versus Republicans or industry versus environmentalists, though those things are very important kind of on the surface. But underneath the, the real battle is human beings versus physics and the problem is that physics doesn't play by the rules that we're used to playing by. It doesn't compromise. It doesn't meet halfway. It doesn't indulge in spin. It's just uninterested in all of that. It's just interested in carbon.
1: I've had this experience multiple times, and that was the line I, I was used. Mother Mother Nature really isn't going to give us a couple of extra years if we promise to do better in the future. You know, it's on right. its own path, and I right. think that is the biggest challenge. And Politicians have to be part of the solution, but that means that the public has to grasp this and demand demand we do better.
0: I think that's right. I think that's right, and that's what movements are about. And hopefully this one's reaching the kind of, um, you know, it's reaching a, a, a crescendo. Now, of course, the problem is that it's it's a movement with a really strong adversary on the other side. And that adversary owns one of our political parties and has largely terrified the other one. So that makes it very, very difficult, and it—you know—I don't know whether we'll be able to overcome the Koch brothers and Exxon and all of that in time or not. But we were—at least—it's clear now that we're not going to go down without a fight, and uh, I, there are signs that the fight is going better. I'd say.
1: Well, we've run out of time, and you chose a song to finish the the show with, as well as you chose a song to start the the show with. So first I'm gonna ask you to tell me what song you wanted me to start with, which was the Antonique Smith version of Here Comes the Sun. Why oh, did you want oh, me to play that one? a new
0: song. Yeah, you'll like this. Antonique is great. She's a Broadway singer, but she's part of the Hip Hop Caucus, Reverend Lennox Yearwood's operation, which has been amazing. And I asked her to learn Here Comes the Sun for a big show we were doing in Brooklyn earlier this year. And her version was spectacular. She's now recorded it on a new EP and all the proceeds from downloads of it are going to uh, the climate movement. So uh, check out Anthony's version of Here Comes the Sun. And then, uh, since, you know, after a talk like this of uh, uh, necessarily somewhat depressing nature about the biggest crisis the human society's ever faced always good to have a little bit of soothing hope uh, at the end. I love that voice. Nina Simone, the kind of Chanteuse of the Civil Rights Movement, is singing, well, I think in this case, singing, ooh, child, things are going to get easier, which is um, which is a hopeful note.
1: Ooh, child, things are going to get easier ooh, child, things are get brighter Ooh, child, are going to get easier Ooh, things will get brighter Someday we'll get it together And we'll get it undone Someday when the world is much brighter Someday we'll walk in the rays of a beautiful sun Someday when the world is much lighter